What's up? This is Jeremy Allen Gould, and this is the newest episode of the Who's to Say podcast. For many years, I booked a ton of amazing bands because I freaking love music. Even though I don't do that anymore, I've stayed friends with many of these artists, as well as some new ones along the way. This is a place to hear their stories. Get into it, guys. Oh, and uh, who's to say? Welcome back. It's the newest episode of the Who's to Say podcast. This is Jeremy, and I'm with one of my dearest friends, Jared Chase Bowser. Jared and I go back quite a ways, and um, we've experienced a lot of cool things uh, together, which is really cool. Um, Jared's an incredible drummer and a legit one of the funniest guys um, I know on the planet. Um, we talk about Jared's time in the bands Bernard and Sun Bears, Black Kids and Swim, um, and we also talk about the time when the FBI showed up at his doorstep because of the musician Ryan Adams. Um, thanks for tagging along. With that said, Jared, who's to say? What up, doggy? How's it going? Good, man. What are you up to? Uh, just chilling. I just put my son to bed. My wife is out of town, so it's just me and him for now. And yeah. night? Yep. That's awesome, man. That's really, really Thanks. cool. Thank you. That's so cool. Um, I love that you're totally a dad. I think it's so cool. Um, yeah, he's he's uh, he just turned six months old, and he's amazing. I never thought I would be a dad or thought I would enjoy being a dad, but I love it. And he's just, he makes it easy because he's very chill most of the time. And awesome. very he's very happy, smiles all the time. What's the coolest part about being a dad? Um, uh, Just playing with him. I don't know, like being down on the, he has like a little play mat and just a bunch of toys and just seeing how he interacts with stuff and trying to get him to talk, reading him books and stuff like that. That's sweet. Kind of just all of it. You ever put music on and he just jammed to it? I do, all the time. Was I he... try to, uh, I don't know yet. He really loves this video on YouTube where it's like these dancing vegetables. I know it's not like, it's not even really music. There's music playing, but is he, it... he doesn't, I don't know what he actually likes yet. Not VeggieTales, no. That is outlawed in our house. <laughs> <laughs> PTSD from that. <laughs> Dude, well, kids like some weird stuff, but mm -hmm. it makes sense. Cool, dude. Well, so let's go back. I'm trying to. I was trying to think the other day about when we met. I know it was probably '09, maybe '08, something like that. Yeah, either the end of '08 or beginning of '09, I think. Yeah, I just. I, I'll go back. I I remember specifically. Um, Brian was telling me about uh, about you guys. Sun Bears, and um, I just got like completely and utterly obsessed with it. And so I think for me, when I met you for the first time, I was like, "Like these guys are legit rock stars." <laughs> and, and, well, I meant I mean that, and, the, and like because I I saw you guys as you could be huge. Um, yeah. And so like I think for me, like I, I remember they put together a show with you guys playing, and I think uh, Shangri-La played and Lark and the Owl, and I, I was just freaking so stoked to be back. And I was so stoked to meet you guys. Um, and I just remember being, like, blown away that night. Well, thanks, man. That was at Jackrabbits, right? Yeah, that, that, was, that was. I think it, and it was a random night. It was, like, a Tuesday. Oh, yeah. Just, just all, random... It was all for you. I know. Everyone I know, pulls no, out I... the stops. <laughs> 
it was so bizarre. I I don't even know why it, everyone wanted to do that, but that was really cool. It was just because uh, you're Jeremy Gould. That's why. Well, you're too sweet. You're too sweet. You know, you know the real me. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that sucks. All right. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's talk about what got you into music. Um, kind of where you just tell me kind of how it started for you. Um, let's see. I was probably like nine years old. And I just remember there was like a like a barrel in my room. I think my obviously my parents had put it in there as like I don't know. It was like a, it looked like a wooden barrel with like a, a the top was like made out of I don't know vinyl or something. I don't know. But anyway, I found like two wooden dowels like in the garage, and I was just started like tapping on the barrel to my brother's CDs because he had like Dakota Motor Company and seven day jesus and like six pence cds and stuff like that so i would just kind of i guess i i mean just play to the rhythm and that that was just kind of how i realized that maybe i liked drums a little bit and then i eventually talked my dad into buying me a drum set which i don't know how any kid can talk their parent into that because i realize now how obnoxious that probably is oh yeah just just with the volume but they were super supportive and they let me play. And I just kind of taught myself, I would just plug in these huge headphones into my CD player and just try to play what I heard. So it was, it was more of just me stealing my brother's CDs and just trying to play to them. And that was, that was kind of it. And then I started playing in my church probably two years later, probably when I was like 12 in the junior high band. That was the first time I ever played in front of anyone. And it just that kind of turned into a weekly thing and then everything else just kind of snowballed from there but that was kind of that was it for kind of how i started kind of simple but so but what yeah. records were were you really getting into that really at the i mean i know you said dakota and, and sixpence but like what what did you start to like gravitate to the first record and it's still one of my favorite records to this day my cousin johnny showed it to me he had it on cassette and it was gold by Starflyer 59. Dude. And I mean, still, it still holds up. It still sounds, I mean, if it came out today, I would be just as obsessed with it. But oh, yeah. that record kind of was the gateway to so much music and like all the tooth and nail stuff. And yeah, that just kind of shaped what I was into at a young age. And I'm talking like I heard it in fifth grade. Yeah, so. I was, was 1995. I like vividly remember listening to it and I just could not turn it off. And then, then I got, I heard silver. Obviously I know that came out first, but I heard gold first. And then all the tooth and nail bands I got super into, or most of them, not all, but, but yeah, even the punk stuff. And I had like a little ska phase here and there. I kind of just consumed anything that was from tooth and nail at the time and kind of yeah. loved it all. But Starflyer was, Starflyer and that first Merlis Forest record are my favorites, probably Dude. from from it from any that of us. I think Lost in Ohio did such a good pressing of that. Finally, the, the oh yeah, Merlis it's great. Forest. I actually yeah. listened to that today. I wound up getting the green one in finally. So nice. I know. I'm like green looks I good. Sell, I, should I sell one? I don't know. I just uh, hold on to it. I know. Then if you need it, if you need to sell it someday, you in can. But yeah, in a pinch. Exactly. So I know 
you know, at that time you were, uh, you obviously were young enough, but I feel, I feel like you, didn't you do like, weren't you working with like bands for their websites and stuff before you were playing or was it, I know you did something like that. Yeah, I guess when I was, I mean, I'd been playing by then, but I, I was like making websites for local bands when I was like 13 probably. And I just figured out how to make like do HTML stuff or whatever. So I would, I made websites for Lugnut, who is a local punk band and for Honey Locust, who is a local ska band. And I think I did a website for Light Switch, another local punk band, I can't remember, but yeah, it was, that was kind of all I did, just the local stuff. But that was like early internet days where it's like an animated graphic was like a big deal. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And it was just, it was like when the links were blue and then you click on it and they turn purple and they have an underline. It's like, it was just super basic back then. Cause it was like 1997 still or something, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was fun. Or I guess, I don't know. It was interesting to me. And then I remember I got thanked in the first Lugnut CD. It was like my first, first time my name was ever in a CD thanks list, Sick. but I don't even think I'd met them yet. And I don't think they realized that I was like 12, but I was in there. I wonder if they even know that. Uh, I think I told. I, I think I. Yeah, I think I told Owen before because I don't really talk to anyone else in the band. I might have told Chris like 15 years ago, but I can't remember. I went fishing with Chris like five years ago. I don't know. Nice. I'm not he, really a fisher, but how's he doing? He was doing good six years ago. I mean, true. I'm glad I haven't reached out, but I'll see if he wants to come on at some point. Maybe maybe he'll hear this. <laughs> maybe it's a beacon <laughs> it's so stupid um anyway so what's uh i guess since you started playing drums were you playing guitar as well or was it just mainly drums i played drums for, for the first few years and then i my brother obviously had a guitar and i would just kind of play it either when he wasn't home or maybe he would let me play it but it was like a a red sparkle Les Paul. He actually eventually sold it to Jonathan Berlin, who I ended up being in many bands with later on. But uh, yeah, it was another thing where I would just kind of look up tabs on the internet and just kind of taught myself. Because I, I realized that like power chords were super easy and I could play like every MXPX song because it's awesome. super simple. But And then from there, I I started to play bass and messed around with some other instruments. But Drums were my main instrument, I guess, but when I joined this or formed this band, Bernard with Jonathan, I originally was the guitarist in that band for like the first two years or so. And his brother, Josh, played drums. And, and our friend Ryan was on bass. Yeah, yeah. How did, how did that whole band come together? Um, really, it was like... I first met Jonathan because I was playing at the Jacksonville Landing with my brother. My brother's like a worship artist, and he was Is he doing still massive in Brazil, by the way. Uh, to my knowledge, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. He's like plays in stadiums and stuff. I think down there. Yeah, that's nuts. But I was playing. With, I was playing with my brother here, and Jonathan was in the audience or the crowd or whatever, and he came up to me after and like gave me a, his dad's business card with his phone number on the back i was like probably 15 and he was like we should jam sometime and i think he had like a a jimmy world shirt on like one that had like united states and it said jimmy world over it i think he wore it like every day for three years but that or like this baby blue weezer shirt but anyway 
I didn't call him because I'm super introverted, but we eventually crossed paths again at, an, at a church that we ended up both playing at. And I was in a kind of a band with my cousin Johnny and my friend Joel, and that was, we were just doing some local stuff here and there. It was just more for fun. And Jonathan came to play with us, and then that band ended up breaking up. So Jonathan was like, he had some songs he'd written of his own. So he was like, do you want to play guitar in this band? Uh, my friend Ryan, who I met, and Ryan was in like a local Love like Ryan. indie hip-hop band at the time. And his name is Ryan Adams, which is ironic. Ironic. <laughs> especially, we'll get to that later. But And he's like, and my brother Josh will play drums. So I was like, sure. And it was very like Seagaros-influenced, uh, just kind of ambient stuff. And which obviously I loved. Jonathan loved it. Ryan loved it. Josh played. He played the songs. I don't think he was necessarily on the same page as far as like musical interests. But anyway, he he did a good job. And uh, yeah, so Bernard just started playing locally, you know, at Marie Hill Theater, which is where I saw my first concert or my first like cool concert. I saw Plank High and Fiber and Frenzy there in 1995, I think. But I'd seen like Smitty and Carmen and all that stuff earlier. But my first alternative show, I guess I could you could say. But anyway, we started playing at Maria Hill and oh, just trying to open for bands. Like we opened for Me Without You. Oh, wow. And Cool Hand Luke, Dennis and Mars. Uh, I'm trying to think of. Yeah, anyone anyone that was remotely cool, we definitely were like, can we play? <laughs> Chris Staples. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of the start of Bernard. We had this little EP we recorded, and Jonathan was just getting into, you know, recording and stuff and engineering and all that stuff, and even probably songwriting. So it was a, we were all kind of learning as we went, and I was still learning, you know, guitar, trying to improve and stuff, but... It was it was fun in the early days for sure. So what made you become the drummer? John uh, like Josh leave or what? Yeah, it's like with siblings. I know it's probably tough. Um, so he and Jonathan just butt heads a lot, and I think Josh Josh would quit the band like every other day. You know what I mean? Just kind of just just sibling stuff probably. And then finally, I think he quit like the day of a show that we had out of town in Columbus, Georgia or something like that, if I remember. And Jonathan called me, he's like, you're playing drums tonight. And I was like, all right. And then after that, I just, I kept playing drums. And Jonathan, we just, we were three piece from then on out. We jammed with a couple other guitarists to see if it could work out, but he just decided to run his guitar stereo to kind of fill the sound out with two different yeah. amps, you know? Yeah. And yeah, from then on, we were just a three piece. And it kind of, I kind of preferred it. I just kind of felt more comfortable on drums and I feel like it kind of just kicked it up a notch. Nothing against Josh at all. Josh is incredible, but maybe, at least in my own mind, I just felt more comfortable in the yeah. band. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so when you guys are obviously playing local shows and stuff, but I guess what brought you to Floodgate or, or how did that kind of halt? I know you put the EP out and then. Just... Yeah, we had, we put like one little three song EP out and then we put another like seven song. Okay, yeah, yeah. Thing out. I don't even know what you would call it like a long EP. Even though, I mean, it was like seven songs. It was like an hour probably. Yeah. But 
and we also had another song that we put out on a Deep Elm Records compilation called This Is Indie Rock. Oh, yeah. And that was really cool because I was a huge fan of Deep Elm, like, growing up with the Abbasi cast and all those bands. Like, I idolized those bands. And uh, anyway, so we... Um, what, what did you just ask? I just lost my total <laughs> train of thought. How did you get off my gate? Okay. So, yeah, so... We, Playing at Jacksonville, uh, playing at Maria Hill, there were bands like Forever Changed and uh, Dennis and Mars and the Myriad and Cole Hand Luke that we played with and became friends with all throughout over the years and stuff. And they all signed to Floodgate. Yeah. So I think that they, somebody and some of those bands are probably talked to Tim Tabor and recommended us because he was, yeah. you know, still in the process of building a label and signing bands. So he contacted us and he actually flew to jacksonville to see us play a show we were opening for mute math oh, wow. at, at jackrabbits which was a, it was huge for us i was still playing guitar at the time and he he came out just flew from california to see us play and check us out and he really liked it and then he i think the next or the following weekend was cornerstone florida so he was down there too and watched us again and took us to dinner at this barbecue place and just kind of got to know us. And eventually, I, I mean, I, I feel like a few or a little bit of time passed, maybe a few months or something, but we ended up signing with Floodgate. He, yeah, I don't know. He set us contract. It was super simple. And yeah, that was, like it was kind of crazy. Was that the only offer you had or do you, was that? Yeah, I mean that we we didn't even try for anything else because we were like we loved all those bands on that label and we were just and they all spoke highly of it so we were just kind of down for that. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, after you know shortly after signing with Floodgate, how long did you take to work on your record? Was it pretty quick? I I was listening to it the other day. I love that record, by the way. Um, View from the cave, beyond the cave. Um, well, just kind of tell me about the the process of that record and, and kind of just uh, what what brought all that on. Okay, so yeah, we recorded it in St. Augustine and like some, I don't, it was like a storage unit under construction or something. I don't know, but for some reason we had access to just this empty room. Or maybe it was a studio. I can't honestly remember. Maybe it was a studio that wasn't fully finished yet. I can't remember. But the guy who recorded it is Jeremy Griffith. Oh, Jeremy Griffith did. I didn't realize he did that. He didn't mix it, but he engineered it and kind of like helped produce it. So he was in this band Moments in Grace. They were from St. Augustine for a time, and I think they'd moved to L.A. for a while. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we knew or met them we played a show with them in saint augustine because they were like auditioning new guitar players or whatever so they did they would do like a secret show and it was literally in the back room of a video store or something that's awesome and we played so we met jeremy there and he's obviously super cool and wanted to work with us and he did some demos at his house that sounded incredible like beyond a thousand times beyond anything we had done on our own and honestly, probably a thousand times better than the view beyond the cave ended up mm. sounding at the end. You know, I, I just wish Jeremy had mixed it because anyway, so we worked with him and Jonathan had been, you know, writing songs in the 
the, over the last couple months. And I would kind of write a little bit of stuff on top of them because I was still kind of was doing or thinking about guitar stuff. So like the song Too Far, there was some guitar stuff I played and on the record on that and wrote some of it. And like the bridge on To Those This World I played guitar on, but not much else. But other than that, it was just drums. But we, re we recorded it like two, maybe over a weekend, probably from, I don't know, 5 to 2 a.m. or something. It was super quick. And it was just super DIY. And that was what ended up being the EP that was put out on Floodgate. That's sick. Was, yeah, uh, did Tim love, love it? Tim, I don't think, was a huge fan of Jeremy's mixes. That's why he wanted this other dude to mix it. Who was it? I think his name was Devin DeVore. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what else he's done, but I don't think any of us were happy with the final mix, but it is what it is, you know? Yeah. It just kind of sounds kind of trebly to me and kind of thin compared to Jeremy's mix. Yeah, Jeremy's was like warm and like more ballsy and stuff. Well, and he also knows what it needs to sound like. Right. But it was a, it was a good experience overall. I mean, for, for what it is. That was your first recording? session basically Besides, my person my personally well no because i obviously you guys did bernard but like that was like in like a i guess it wasn't really a recording studio essentially but i mean but yeah i mean it was the first thing we recorded outside of like jonathan's house for okay. sure that's awesome and it was the first one i'd played drums on and most of the stuff before this the drums were programmed anyway because we didn't have mm -hmm. a good way to mic the drums or mix the drums or preamps and all that stuff yeah. So this was definitely the, yeah, it was the first real thing we did, really. Was Griff bummed that his mix got cut? Uh, I think at the time, probably. Yeah. But, I mean, I would have been too, for sure. But sure. I, I mean, I prefer his over the, the finished oh, product, but it was ultimately absolutely. Tim's call, which is, you know, it, people liked it, so it, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. And you guys um, obviously toured with that. What 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 were those tours like? I know you played Cornerstone, and it was really big for you guys. But what kind of what, what? Tell me about the tours and kind of what happened after that. The yeah, we did Cornerstone Florida twice. Once when I played guitar, and then the next year I was on drums, and that was when we were on Floodgate at that point. And we did Cornerstone Illinois one time, which was amazing. We played two times at that, and. One time was before the Rocket Summer. We played at like 7 o'clock, which was a good slot. Okay. And then the next night we played, or maybe two nights later, we played right for Butte Math again. And that was a killer slot. It was like 9 o'clock. It was supposed to be Forever Changed slot, but they broke up. So I guess because we were label mates, we were able to get on it on that time slot, which was huge for us. We had a great reception at that. That was probably the best moment of the band was Cornerstone, Illinois, that second show. That's awesome. And the tours, we toured with Edison Glass, who are phenomenal. Love the those funniest, guys. funniest guys in the world. So good. And the most talented guys yeah. in the world. Ridiculous. Like, I felt like a moron playing the same night as them at the same venue because they were just crushing it compared to anything we did. It was, dude, it was like totally. the men from the boys. Yeah. I, I just randomly like, when I was booking shows, I I remember their agent or someone whoever was booking for them 
emailed me was like, hey, you want to book this band? And I was kind of like, I was kind of always leery about booking bands I'd never heard. And I just, I don't know why, but I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever, they can play the show, I'll pay them a hundred bucks or whatever. And I just remember being like, what in the hell? Like, this yeah. is unreal. Like, and then I booked them probably five or six times later. I actually had them play direct support for MXPX one night, which was really nice. awesome. Yeah, they they were stoked. I um, feel like they told me about that. Yeah, it was it was a random. It was just they had. I didn't know me. you booked that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And I booked. I had MXPX booked, and then they had hit me up about a show, and I was like, "You guys can play direct support. You're gonna get paid nothing." But they were like, right. "We'll do it." Yeah. Right. Who wouldn't do it? No, I know it was it was really cool. It was really really cool. Yeah, those guys are great. That was such a good time because it was like. It didn't even matter. I mean, most of the shows were pretty well attended anyway, but it didn't even yeah. matter if they weren't just because it was just a blast to hang out with them. Totally. And then we did some shows with Cool Hand Luke, maybe like a week or two. I can't remember totally, but those were probably the ones that were worth noting. And then a couple other runs we did. And, you know, it was kind of hit or miss. Some shows would be great. Some shows would be horrible. Yeah. And we were touring in an RV, so it was like... It would guzzle gas, but we were. Our thinking was like, we don't have to like stay in hotels, and we can buy groceries and keep it in the RV. But then, like to fill the RV up was like all the money we made from yep. the last four shows for one. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like it definitely like stressed us out and stuff. And we we didn't know what we were doing. You know, it's like yeah. we didn't have a manager really at the time. Eventually, this uh, Tom from Murray Hill started to manage us, but that was kind of towards the end anyway. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Yeah, like well, we you're just you're just losing money by the second yeah. when, when you're well, out especially like at that. that time. That was probably when the, the economy was starting to go crap, and oh, totally. gas was probably like four dollars a gallon or whatever. Mm-hmm. That sucks. I mean, that's that's cool you got to experience that, but that sucks. I feel like you guys definitely should have been in a better spot. Like I don't know, I I feel bad saying this, but at that point there was just too many bands on the road too, you know, and it was like right. everything was exploding. MX or MX. MySpace and all that stuff was just freaking king. So, right, you know, and I, you know, it sucks. I probably got emailed to do a bunch of like huge bands that are big now that I was like, no, I'm not gonna like, I don't know who that band is. And then, right, looking back, I'm like, man, I should have booked them. But oh well, man. Say lovey. <laughs> anyway, will be, will be, sera, sera. <laughs> No, but uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, so Bernard ended up, you know, we put the EP out. It did, it was actually an iTunes-only release, I think, because really? maybe Tim didn't totally believe in us at first. I mean, there were hard copy CDs for us to sell on the road, but it was not distributed to stores. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And, but we ended up, I think, exceeding his expectations, which is a good feeling, you know? Because I, I feel like he probably thought we were kind of weird, just I mean, obviously we're weird people, but musically, like, he probably, we definitely were probably the least commercial band that he had by a mile, you know? Yeah. But I think people liked it, and I mean, it, it sold well on the road for, for what it is, but, but yeah, it just all ended up kind of fizzling out, and yeah. we broke up in 2006, in October. Okay. It was just so kind, it was kind of a big... for like three or four years, two or three years? Yeah, I guess 2000. Yeah, I guess about two and a half years. Wow. So and, yeah, it broke up. We broke up and it was not a like 
me and Ryan still remain friends. Me and Jonathan were not friends. And then Jonathan moved out to California and lived in like a Jeremy Edwardson's basement from the Myriad. Yeah. And me and Ryan for a while were in a different band called Slight Breeze, which was like a post-rock band. And we did a couple shows and put it, did an EP and yeah. That's cool. When did, uh, I want to go back to Griff for a minute. Uh, was Savio around that time, or when when did that happen? Savio was. When was that? Good question. Yeah, that was, that was after Bernard, before Sunbears. Tell me, tell me about Savio. Savio is a band, or it's just kind of a name that Jeremy would record music under, because obviously he has a killer voice and he's a killer songwriter and obviously has all of the means to record and he could play every instrument. So he would just write songs all the time and he wanted to like record them properly. So he asked the moments of grace drummer Tim to play drums on it and he could not do it. So I was the second person he called, which is extremely flattering to me. Yes, absolutely. And his friend, Jimmy Reeves, was the other guy Spitfire. and he was yeah he's from spitfire which i was like a huge spitfire fan too obviously because they were on tooth and nail but it's like dude i was like really it's the guy from spitfire like i can't believe it <laughs> so we all went to his aunt's cabin jeremy's aunt's cabin in helen georgia for like two weeks and recorded like 17 songs we hauled a console up there in a van from matt goldman's studio which Jer uh, jeremy was working there at the time in like the b room and we just drank beer and recorded and sat by the fire at night. And it was a dream, honestly, that like dream incredible. scenario. It's like what you hear like of famous people doing. You're like, that sounds amazing. I kind of got to do that for that. Just as far as like you're staying in one place, you just wake up, record, be creative and just chill at night. That's awesome. That sounds incredible. So, yeah, the only like four songs were ever released, but there's a ton more songs and they're all super good and super sad but beautiful and absolutely they'll probably never ever come out but i mean i was happy to be a part of it for sure and i yeah, still, that's really cool that's still like a fond memory for me absolutely i i think uh that's another one of those bands that you know griff's just so ridiculously talented it's like it, it's it's almost like he has so many different songs and it's like he wants to you know he wants to he needs to put his stuff out either way but like, right it's frustrating i'm sure for you and jimmy maybe to be like man this needs to be heard you know because it's such he's so talented yeah you're all talented i guess you know i'm not but yeah you're okay <laughs> anyway after bernard and savio so um what so uh, i guess what was the next step after uh, so was this kind of when the whole ryan adams thing happened or okay so the ryan adams thing that happened a little bit before Savio, I think, maybe like okay. a year, if I can remember correctly. Yeah, maybe a year before. So this is a crazy story, and I've told it 10,000 times, but I will tell it again. This is an exclusive. This is an exclusive. You need like a, a sound bite right now. Exclusive. <laughs> Who's to say? No. Okay. So. I will leave certain names out of this just because they might not want to be mentioned, but yes, I'll leave the important ones in. And one of them might be on the podcast soon. Just so oh, you know. really? Who's to say? 
<laughs> okay, so in August of 2005, somebody sent me some song or sent me the this pre-release copy of a Ryan Adams album that was coming out in like a month. And the album was called Jacksonville City Nights. And that person had gotten it from someone who wrote for a magazine that's so they got the album early to review and this is before digital this is like napster or this is this is at like right after napster basically okay, right after this napster. is like lars was still on the tip of people's tongue at yes. this time <laughs> <laughs> he was still his name was still in the air but uh <laughs> so i get this so he sends it to this guy. This guy sends it to me. And just kind of like, dude, I know you like Ryan Adams. Like, happy birthday, because my birthday was like that week or something. And I was turning 20, 20 years old. And I was like, sweet. Like, dude, I love it. Like, this is incredible. And at the time, like, this is before, like, trolling was a common term. Yeah. So me and this guy, we get on this Ryan Adams fan message board, and we start to troll people. Because Ryan Adams fans are they can be intense you know and very like extreme and just yeah, yeah just they're, they're cool they're they're fanatics yeah they're not just fans no but so we go in there and we're just like hey we have jacksonville city nights like it's you know just trying to make people jealous just to yeah. rub it in their face because they're all like dying to hear it and we're just kind of messing with them you know poking fun and i get like 20 emails from people like immediately that are like I'll pay you $50 if you send me the MP3s. I'll give you blah, 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 you know, just making me offers. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that because obviously that is wrong. I'm not going to sell it. And then this guy named Rob, who ran a different Ryan Adams fan message board, messaged me. And his name is actually Rob Thomas, if you can believe that. <laughs> not the Rob Thomas from the Smooth song featuring Santana, <laughs> but a random guy named Rob Thomas in like Wisconsin or something. And he messages me and he's like, I have this unreleased Ryan Adams session called the Scott Lit Sessions. And I had heard about it before and it, I know that it existed and no one's ever heard it. He's like, I'll trade you this session for Jacksonville City Nights. And I was like, okay, because what's the harm in that? You know, like I didn't know that it was a federal crime. Yeah. So I was like, okay. So I sent him four, I sent him five songs. And after I'd sent him five songs, he said, I don't have uh, what what I said I had, but thanks anyway. Oh. I was like, I was like, cool. But I mean, whatever. Like, still, I'm like, that's annoying that I spent time sending you songs. But that was the only reason why I was like bummed by it. Because I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. Yeah. And so then this guy, Rob, puts the songs on his own message board. He uploads them and shares them on his message board. What a cool guy. Yeah, he's very cool. Maybe the coolest guy. No, but uh, so I'm working at a restaurant at the time, bussing tables, and I see, I, I would check my phone all the time because I'd be so bored, but it was like I had a flip phone, and I looked at my phone, and I had a call from a Nashville area code, and I had a voicemail. This was like a few days later, and I go into the bathroom and listen to the voicemail, and they're like, hello, uh, I'm looking for Jared Bowser. 
This is Agent John McMurtry from the Cybercrimes Division of the FBI. I would like to talk to you about the Ryan Adams songs that have appeared online. And please call me back at 615-da-da-da-da-da-da at your earliest convenience. And I was like, I start shaking, you know, obviously. But then I'm like, this has to be a prank, you know, like who, who's doing this to me? And I get off work, I end up, or I go home, and I'm, I probably go outside or something because I was living with my parents, and obviously I didn't want them to know. So I call the number back, and sure enough, it is the FBI. And they want to talk to me about the songs that showed up on the internet. I don't know how they knew that I had the songs. I have no, you know, it's like, what in the world? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just a busboy from Jacksonville, Florida, who's a Ryan Adams fan that sent songs to a dude. Like, just one guy. Yeah. So I called him back, and I was just kind of like, I don't know, man. Like, maybe I got hacked. I have no clue. Because I don't even think at the time I knew that Rob publicly shared the songs. Mm-hmm. I, uh, You know, it's like, and either way, it was definitely, I was never like, hey, Rob, make like, help me out and leak these songs. Yeah. Like, I only was sending them to Rob only. I wasn't, I wasn't giving them to Rob to send to the entire world. But anyway... Fast forward to like a week later, and I'm brushing my teeth in the bathroom, about to go to Atlanta to see Seeger Rose for the first time with Jonathan and Ryan, and I think it was just the three of us, maybe Jonathan's girlfriend or something. But I was like, you know, freaking stoked because they're my favorite band ever. And as I'm brushing my teeth, the doorbell rings, and my mom is home. My dad's at work, and my mom is like, Jared? And I'm like, what? You know, like with toothpaste in my mouth. She's like, why are the FBI here? Mm. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so I go to the door and there's two FBI agents in suits and they have a binder. And I saw them have the binder open for a second. There's a photo of me in the binder. I think it was like a, from like my, like a, like a grade school photo or like high school, maybe just to identify me or something. But anyway, that was kind of weird, but they come inside and sit at the dining room table and interview me right there. And it's my mom and me and two FBI agents. And she has no clue about anything at all. So this is 100% a surprise to her, everything that was being said. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, what in the world is going on? And they take the, com- the family computer, like the only computer in the house, like the, the PC, you know, with the tower and all that stuff. Yeah. They take it to make a forensic copy of the hard drive and and that's it. And she's just like, and I was like, please don't tell dad till I'm on the road. Like, I can't miss this show. I can't see Rose, mom. Cause she probably heard me listen to him before. And she, she knew that I liked him. But anyway, uh, my dad called me like 45 minutes to the drive. He's like, turn around now. And I was like, uh, I can't. It's like, get out of the car. No. I'll pick you up. Where are you? And I was like, can we just talk about it tomorrow? And he, he let me still go to the show, which is crazy. But so, they so basically after that i don't hear anything until march of the next year so it's end of august until or maybe beginning of september until march so by that point i think that i'm free and clear well let me back up for a second when you were going cigarettes that night were you like lose were you could you even enjoy the concert or were you just like oh my god i'm screwed i definitely it was both 
So you, you I could enjoy you, it, but at the same time, I was, it was still all I could think about. And they had this like pre-show music, like during changeover, where that was like very pulsing, like, and it was that, that was about to drive me insane. Cause it was like making my anxiety just go to a thousand. But the show was still beautiful, and I could still enjoy. I could still like escape for that yeah. short, you know, two hours or whatever. But then after that, it was like back to reality. You drive home the whole way home. You were probably oh, yeah. about it. And I think we drove home in the middle of the night, if I remember correctly. So it's like I got back home at like six in the morning or whatever. Oh my god! But uh, so but yeah. So then I don't hear anything from the FBI for six months, and my friend who had sent me the songs. He would still hit me up every now and then. He's like, I talked to him last week. You know, like, say I hadn't talked to him in three three months. He's like, they still came back last week. So they're still working. I just don't hear a word about it. And then in March of 2006, I get a phone call from the Tennessean newspaper from a reporter to, like, my cell phone. I don't even know how. It's like, this is like before iPhones. I'm like, how did you even get my cell phone? Mm. This is like before the internet was on your phone. So it's like, it's just weird that a reporter was able to track me down on my flip phone when I'm 20. But before I'd heard anything for the FBI, but anyway, they call and they're like, oh, hey, is this Jared? And I was like, yeah, we'd like to interview you today about the indictment that was handed down to you today. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, the indictment for, uh, I think they said pre-release piracy and copyright infringement and conspiracy and i was like i i literally don't know what you're talking about and then a few hours later the fbi called me and they said that i like the the reporter called me before the fbi even let me know then they called me and said i have 30 days to appear in front of a judge in nashville tennessee and i'm up for three felonies up to 11 years in prison Seven hundred fifty thousand dollar fine, and yeah, that was it. Yeah, so three felonies. It wasn't even a good record. I mean, I liked it, but I mean, I liked I liked everything. I liked everything. (laughs) (laughs) You've probably even heard it, have you? No, I. I mean, I've heard it one time. (laughs) No. So anyway, yeah. So it was three felonies, eleven years, seven hundred fifty grand. It's eleven years each felony. 11 years total. Total. So it was two counts of copyright infringement, which carried five years each. You know, like when you would see the FBI warning at the beginning of like yeah. HS tape? Yeah. They were just like 500 or $250,000, five years. It was like two of those. And then another count, another felony for conspiracy, which was up to a year in prison, because they think that I conspired with Rob Thomas to leak the songs. So they, after all of their research, they think that they deduce that me and Rob were in, in it together. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't even know this dude. And he, yeah. I sent him the songs, you know, not thinking that he's going to give it to everyone. I just thought I was going to get a couple of tracks back. You know, I was just a, my lawyer put it like I was an overzealous music fan. Which is very true. Yeah, I was like, I'm not trying to hurt anyone. Ryan Owls is my favorite artist in the entire world. I would never like want to damage his career by like cutting his record sales or something. Yeah. So anyways, 
some time passes, you know, I, I, you know, got to break it to my family that I indeed am extremely screwed and I'm indicted and I have to go to court in Nashville in 30, within 30 days. So long story short, we get a lawyer who this guy, Tom Bishop from Jacksonville, who's he's naughty, man. He, he's just like the first time we met him, he's like, he's like, you know, I like to do, I like to practice law because I like to win. He's like, what I like to do is I like to walk in there and slash the prosecutor's throat. But he's like got gray hair and he's super like legit, but he's like, he just, he's that confident that he will win. You know what I mean? So I was like, this is the lawyer for me. That's awesome. So he and I fly up to Nashville for my arraignment and I like, I'm in a suit and I look very presentable. So they don't, so they don't think I'm some like, you know, criminal. Criminal, exactly. Even though I am, or allegedly, allegedly, I get, I go to the U.S. Marshal's office of the or section of the federal courthouse in Nashville, and they do my fingerprints, take my mug shot. They definitely treat you like you're a criminal there. You know what I mean? Like the FBI, no, they would do that. No way. There's no, there's no niceties. Like, you, like if you're oh. polite, they don't care. There's no way the FBI could do that believe it man i didn't think so either i thought they would have like you know rolled they, out the red carpet for you right yeah where's the where's the uh where's my rider <laughs> i should have a 12 pack of pbr in here no but uh yeah so i did that and my lawyer the first thing he did was was file a motion to have all the charges dropped because he's like it is unconstitutional that he's that my client's being tried in Nashville and not Jacksonville, mm. which I guess is true. And I'm sure the FBI thought I was going to get like some public defender because I'm 20 years old and they would just nail me and make an example out of me. They probably didn't expect to go against like a legit lawyer exactly. Yeah. And so they immediately were like. My lawyer's like that, like put a hole in their boat or whatever, whatever that saying is. And so they were like, uh oh, like, what do we do? So then they came back like, well, it doesn't matter because it's on the Internet. So we can still prosecute wherever we want to, which is lame. But but anyway, so they long story short, they. Offered me a plea deal to where if I didn't go to trial. And, and during this time, I'd been up to Nashville probably two more times, like, to plead not guilty. Like, you just have to fly up there just to, like, say two sentences and then leave, which is super annoying. But that's – it is what it is. So they offered a plea deal where if I pled guilty and, – and honestly, they offered that because they thought they might lose against Tom because he's that good and – and and he could have proven that it wasn't my intent to share the songs with the mass public. He could have proven that because it wasn't my intent. And but unfortunately, when money is involved, it's kind of like I would rather take the plea deal and save the family, you know, Lots another thirty thousand dollars or something to not go to trial, and just hope for the best. Yeah. So the plea deal was uh, a misdemeanor, and up to. I believe it was two years in prison and a hundred thousand dollar fine, I think, was the max I could have gotten if I 
pled guilty. So I did, and my whole family drove up there, and it was in December of 2006 was my sentencing. And this was the first time they'd come up to court with me. Normally, it'd just be me and my lawyer that fly up in the morning and then fly home that night. And, you know, it was a big deal, and I met Rob for the first time, actually. Mr. Rob Thomas, as he said. He was smooth, yeah. No, he was so smooth that he... He got a public defender and he actually ended up getting what I got because of the work my lawyer did, which is bummer. That you know what I mean? Because the lawyer or the judge was like, you're being you're being tried for the same thing. So I'm just going to give you both the same punishment, which is bummer because his lawyer did not do anything. And my lawyer did everything and his and lawyer so was free and my lawyer was. Yeah. 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 So that was unfortunate, but good for Rob, I guess. You know, I hope he's thriving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bitter at all, but uh, so we all drive up there. It's like 19 degrees outside, and we're I'm waiting in the lobby of the courtroom, and there was like an like a emancipation, uh, is that what it's called? Like ceremony before, like when people are becoming United States citizens. Oh, so that's an, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, or is it? I think so. I'm probably wrong. And uh. Yeah, I know. I forget. I'm blanking out. I know yeah, it doesn't matter. People get it. Look it up. Do your homework. No, but uh, so people are walking out of the courtroom, like with American flags, like huge smile on their face, like so happy. And I'm just like sitting on a bench being like, cool. I'm about to go to prison for sharing four MP3s because one of the songs that I shared had already been released. So that one didn't count. So they only are prosecuting me for four MP3s, literally like 11 minutes of music. And I might go to prison for this, even for two years. I'd have gotten torn to shreds in there. You oh, seen me? I'm true. kidding. No, but uh, they'd all been all the all the inmates would have looked like you. I'm kidding. <laughs> so we go in there, and I basically take the stand, and I, my lawyers like apologize to the judge and to the district attorney and to all the people that are in there, and he's like, and, and mean it. So I was like. I mean, I went in there and I meant it because I mean, I obviously never wanted to mess with Ryan's career. I never wanted to screw my family over, myself over. I, you know, I never thought that this was ever going to happen from sending a guy some MP3s ever in a million years. And I was like, you know, I work in this industry because I was in Bernard still. And I was like, I understand the importance of, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I never, you know, right now, this is my favorite artist. I have thousands of CDs. You know, I'm not the guy that just takes stuff and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the judge was like, well, I hope this gains Ryan some notoriety because I've certainly never heard of him. <laughs> like, it was a female judge. Her name was Judge Trogger. You can look her up probably. And... She had a reputation being a light judge, and my lawyer was like, that's good. So, she, yeah, she ended up giving me and Rob two months – or, sorry, two years of probation, two months of house arrest, and a misdemeanor, and no fine because they could not, they could not determine any monetary loss that I caused from what I did to the artist or the record label. Can you believe that? That's incredible. So I'm like, why am I even here then if no one – even yeah. is 
hurting from it. You were the guinea pig, bro. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, like the MP3s I found out were digitally watermarked. So if you like download the MP3s, you can pull up the info, like right click, pull up the info, and it'll have a code on it. And they're like, okay, you know, do to do this code went to this guy who works for this magazine, so we'll call him or we'll call the magazine and we'll get his number. Then they called him. Then they're like, who'd you send it to? And he's like, my friend. He called him. Like, who'd you send it to? He's like, Jared. So that was how they got me. Mm. And and the rest of it, honestly, is just had the FBI or whoever done better investigating, they would have realized that I wasn't in cohorts with Rob because they realized that my friend wasn't in on it. So why didn't they realize that about me? You know what I mean? I think they're just trying to because my friend didn't get in trouble at all. Yeah, but I, I found that. But odd. I did, and but I didn't do anything different than he did. I just sent it to one guy. It's like it should it should have just been Rob, but well, that's that's the we price. Think, of, we need to thank Lars for this because the price of America, <laughs> right? It's all Lars's fault. It well, I mean the reality is you you were a guinea pig. You were like yeah. the person you know, who they needed to make a point with. And then, yeah, and I, I realized why they chose someone like Ryan Adams is because he was well-known enough to get, you know, press out of it. Like, it was it was in, you know, all the magazines. It was in, I, like, my picture was in Rolling Stone magazine, which I is kind of... I never saw that. That's crazy. Yeah, but the caption of the photo was Busted Music Fan Bowser. Wow. Yeah, it was like a little quarter-page article. But at least, hey, I got in Rolling Stone magazine. I can yeah. show my son someday. Actually, I don't even have a copy of it, but but I saw the PDF one time. But anyway, um, yeah, so it was like they probably chose someone like Ryan Adams because he was on, you know, under Universal Records. It would have gotten enough press, but if they if it backfired, then they're not losing out on a ton of revenue because it's not like he was selling millions of records. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like if they went after you know, I don't know, Beyonce or somebody, then it's like the backfire from that could have been way worse. Totally. What, um, did Ryan Adams ever say anything about it? He would kind of write on the message board sometimes. At least I think it was him. And I eventually, I think he said something like they were easy targets and he didn't own his songs and it was, he had nothing to do with it, which he didn't, you know? It was all like Lost Highway and Universal Records and the FBI. Yeah. Well, that sucks. Yeah. So then cool I that it worked out for you. I left Nashville, and I don't think my. I guess my house arrest must must not have kicked in yet because I had my parents drive me. We drove all night, and they dropped me off at Jackrabbits because Shangri La was playing. And I made it to the Shangri-La show like three minutes before they went on. That's incredible. And I was like, I'm not in jail. <laughs> and everyone's celebrating. Yeah, it was great. Jared, Jared. That's awesome. Man, I can't. So I know I've asked you this before, but what did your parents say? Um, my mom kind of stayed out of it because I think it was too much for her to like handle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was just, I mean, that's kind of. And now that I'm a parent, I can't imagine the stress that something like that would cause. Yeah. You know, it's insane. 
especially like you think your youngest kid is might be going to prison till he's in his 30s like that's bonkers yeah but my dad you know uh he stepped up to the plate and just took care of business and he gave me good advice he's like there has to be like two you need to separate like there's you and then there's you when you need to deal with this yeah and that helped me kind of stay sane because i was like if i would dwell on the fact that i might go to prison every day i would just go crazy yeah because before i told them anything i was like i couldn't sleep you know i was like it was all i could think about 24 hours a day yeah that's nuts man i can't imagine um man that's intense i just it's funny i know i've heard that story before but it's just like it's just looking back it's just so absurd like the whole situation is just ridiculous it really is and it's like so this was like a new law that had been in effect for like four months before i broke the law and i told my lawyer i was like is there like can i just say that i didn't even know i was breaking the law and he's like unfortunately no like it's your duty to know the law even whether they tell you it's a law or not and i was like that's crazy yeah and then it's like after my thing it's like they didn't even prosecute anyone for like three years until whoever leaked chinese democracy by guns and roses then they went after that guy and his maximum penalty was what i pleaded with so it was like he wasn't up for 11 years he was up for like two years of probation and two months house arrest or something wow yeah it's crazy but one time during the cornerstone festival because I was touring in Bernard kind of while this was going on. And what, like before, like the band Mute Math, the drummer Darren was super nice to me and stuff. And like he would use my drum throne or like sticks or whatever, like because he would just break his stuff all the time. But uh, like we were walking in a field one time. And he's like, How's, how are things going, man? I was like, honestly, not so good. And I kind of gave him the short of the story. And then like a year or two later, Meet Math came to Jacksonville and I saw him there and he was like, they're teaching your case. My friend's in law school and they just taught your case in law school. Oh, wow. Because this was the first case of its kind ever, you know, like there was, this was the first time in history that the feds went after someone for sharing in B3s because like the Lars Ulrich stuff was like just civil lawsuits. Yeah. Like it wasn't like, this is a federal crime that you broke. Isn't that wild? That is very wild but yeah crazy. i made it out and i had my probation dropped a little early and but i was on house arrest for for two months and then my probation was dropped i think eight months early which was great because i had moved out kind of after i realized i wasn't going to prison so i'd always get these like random knocks at seven in the morning for my probation officer just checking in on me or he's or he'd call me at 11 at 9 he's like need you to come to the courthouse the federal courthouse in Jacksonville tomorrow and do a p test mm. yeah i was like cool okay <laughs> got it and one time no nah, i won't say that yeah it was just it was very awkward i bet it was because they would kind of just watch you do the p test you know so yeah, they, they would see that you don't have a device or something with someone else's p since i totally was in there for doing drugs you know i'm like you know, I did MP3 sharing, right? Not like, I'm not uh, freaking, uh, what's his name? 
the know. Colombian dude that Sean Penn interviewed. Chapo, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> They're treating me like an old Chapo. <laughs> That's uh, stupid. What did you do when you were in two months house arrest? I honestly, I was allowed to work and I was still busting tables. So I was like, schedule me as much as you can. And I just worked. And then I would just come home and sit there, go to sleep or ever play acoustic. Did you be on the computer or were they not let you on the computer? They actually could. They let me on the computer. Isn't that, ins- isn't that insane? <laughs> so Rob's lawyer, now that I remember this, Rob's lawyer, because they were going to make sure we were, we were not allowed to be on a computer, but Rob's public defender, like the one thing he did that was of any use to anyone probably was like, Actually, uh, like he's like fumbling through his papers, like shaking. Like he, this is probably his first time in a courthouse. But he was like, "Actually, uh, your your honor, can can, can Rob keep his computer? Because because he uses it for other hobbies, you know, like, uh, like, you know, I forget what he said, but it was like, I'm like, this is your reason for asking this guy who committed a federal crime on his computer to keep his computers because he does hobbies on there." And she was like, "Okay, I will." And I was like, "I was like, sweet." Because this is like way before like people had their own laptops. Like this is like the family computer. So I'm assuming if if like I couldn't have it, then the family probably wouldn't have had a computer either, which would have been super bummer for everybody else. Yeah, that's yeah. It was yeah. Isn't that crazy? I was always like, it's like it's like locking up, or it's like a it's like convicting a pedophile and giving them daycare duty or something. I'm like. You're letting me literally keep my computer and be on it all the time, which is exactly what I used to get myself here. I love it's that. It's bizarre. I love that. Yeah. Oh, gotta well, love it. Gotta love it, man. USA. <laughs> all right. So after that, after that fiasco, after that <sighs> naughty, naughty, yeah, time, dude, it was the naughtiest. The naughtiest of naughty. I believe it. It was, it was I, pure. It was pure evil. I can't believe my friends. <laughs> I can't believe my friends with the with the criminal. I mean, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I I did plead guilty, so I am a criminal. Technically. Yeah. Technically. I am. No, I am. Hardened percent. Hardened, hardened criminal. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so after that. Uh, what did you start? Is that when Sun Bears happened or what? What? Uh... Let's see. That was 2006. So I was actually still in Bernard kind of while that was going on. Or I was in Bernard. Bernard broke up before I was sentenced. So Bernard broke up in October 2006. I was sentenced in December. So by the time I was sentenced, Bernard was done. And that was probably when I started playing with Ryan and a slight breeze kind of after the dust settled from the legal stuff. Okay. And I was also playing with Shangri-La as like a... Percussionist. Percussionist slash auxiliary guitar slash the guy that would sit on stage and smoke the hookah while he wasn't playing. Love that. They would like... I think Walter had like a... these quick light coals or something and they just would have a hookah on stage and we'd just pass it around. <laughs> I know, right? Just need a hacky sack. Good to go. <laughs> so, yeah, I did that. And then uh, Jonathan moved back from California, and 
he moved like two blocks from me and we just kind of forgot all of the Bernard stuff, like the differences and the fighting and all that stuff. And he had started to write some new songs and we just kind of became friends again. And I think it was, I think the Myriad was playing a show with Shangri-La in Jacksonville for like an invisible children benefit or something. And we were like, we should play that show. So we just kind of worked the songs Jonathan had written out like for a live setting, if I remember correctly. And it was just two of us. So I played drums, he played piano, and we just had tracks. And we had a screen projecting, kind of like Bernard did, but this was like colors. Bernard's all black and white footage, and this was color footage. And it was very vibey and Radiohead, like in Rainbow's influence, like early on. And uh, it was fun. Like it took a little while to like get the the just get it down because we never like to practice because practicing is annoying. So I was like, I'll just and everything was so click track. So I was like, and so it's always going to stay the same. So I was like, I'll just learn it on my own. And obviously, you know it, and we'll just show up and play it. And obviously we had played in Bernard a lot, so we kind of knew how each other functioned. But yeah, so that's this kind of the start of that. And it was cool. We're just playing around town at the time. Yeah. Then you got to open for Dredge, right? Yeah, we... Which opened up doors. Yeah, so the band kind of morphed into like a kind of still sad Radiohead type band into, we just, I don't know. I think he's just started writing songs that were more party or something. So we kind of turned into like a more party band, kind of like the Flaming Lips vibe with confetti and lights and just a, more of a spectacle and less like sad electronic music, I guess. Mm-hmm. And kind of like how we did in Bernard, anytime the band would come into town, I would try like a good band, I would try to open for him, you know, like hit up the promoter, be like, can we open? Like, is there a local opener? Cause you never know. Yeah. Normally in the past, it never led to anything other than like saying we got to open for whoever, you know, or we might have talked to them after the show or whatever. Yeah. Not a huge deal, but this band Dredge, who I was a huge fan of, my cousin Johnny told me about him years before, and I'd seen him three times before probably. They were coming through on Halloween, and we were like, called up Tim Hall, this promoter in Jacksonville, and I was like, Tim, can we can we open for dredge? And he was like, let me check, you know, see whatever talks to the booking agent. And so we got on that show. And I mean, is obviously. That, is that huh? happy birth, happy birthday, Satan show? Yes. <laughs> it was Halloween. Of course it is. So stylistically we're way different from dredge because you know, they're like, they're heavy. I mean, they're melodic, but it's, it's not the fans aren't the same probably. I mean, unless you're just like a music fan, like music people would probably appreciate what we do and what they do. Cause they would see the technical parts of what we do probably with the tracks and the screen yeah. and the lights and stuff and be, they would be like respected probably. But yeah. from a casual listener, if you listen to, if you're a dredge fan, you listen to us, you would be like, you know, what the hell is this? Yeah. What is this? It's like Toys R Us theme song or something, <laughs> but Anyway, we got on the show and we played and like literally five minutes after we're done getting our gear off the stage, the dredge drummer Dino, who is crazy, like he's amazing. Like he's one of the best drummers ever and I'm a huge fan. Like, 
you know, I would like nerd out if I saw him. He comes up to me, he's like, hey man, like, do you want to finish out the rest of the tour with us? Just like that. And I was like, it's incredible. I was like, what? He's like this band, I forget their name, like the microphones or something. I don't know. They dropped off the last week and we another, need another opener in. Do you want to do it? Like, he's like, the shows are way bigger than this. Like, they're all in theaters. Like, this is the worst show of the tour. The other venues are, like, five times as big. And I was like, yeah, I think so. Like, we had never gone anywhere as Sun Bears, you know. Like, we didn't have a vehicle anymore. Yeah. The RV was long gone. It's probably burned at some, like, dump. Burning, burning man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think they used it on uh, the set of Breaking Bad. No, but... uh. So I was like, yeah, I think so. And I think we decided that night that we were going to do it. Jonathan's like, dude, I'll put a trailer hitch on my Scion and we'll rent a U-Haul trailer. Because it started in like two weeks or something, or a week. So we did it. We met up with him in Minneapolis. And we did Minneapolis, Madison, St. Louis, Omaha, Denver, and Salt Lake City. It's awesome. And it was it was amazing for us. It was theaters, biggest shows we'd ever done. Yeah. And uh, it was great. And hanging out with the Dredge guys, I mean, they're a blast. They're crazy. And in like the best way. And Judgment Day, Anton and Lewis yeah. were also on the tour. And those guys are incredible as well. Is that who hooked up the Mates of State Blackheads? Or was that like the Blackheads? Yeah, I think that happened because of Blackheads. So Blackheads are this band from Jacksonville. And obviously like owen was in Lugnut, reggie was in honey locust and kevin was in honey locust so it's like people that i've known for a long 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 time and we and we were never really close but like with like the jacksonville like bar scene like tsi and stuff like that they would dj there a lot so i would see them on a weekly basis and we started the band and i guess they liked us enough to invite us out on half of the tour and i think mates estate picked the opener for the other like the west coast half who of the was tour. that was that judgment day or yeah i think it was judgment day and yeah, i think, I think they, it was because they played the night i went and you guys weren't there i think they picked them just from a monetary standpoint because they were also playing with mates of state on the tour in yeah. their band so it like it by having them open like it was able to save them some money in the long run yeah if that makes sense yeah that, that tour was Again, it was theaters, places I never thought I would go to or play at. Like it yeah. was at the time in my life, I was like, I could believe it. You know, like the Metro in Chicago was a place that I, like this Jeff Buckley DVD that I had when I was younger, was that filmed at the Metro? And I was just like, I watched that stuff every day. And just to actually play there and it was sold out, I was like, this is unreal. Yeah, never thought that would happen, you know, or like play Webster Hall in New York or just, some of the places were super cool. I mean, they were all cool, but some ha had more meaning than others. Yeah. That was a great tour for us. And then after that, like, I mean, we had one CD out, Dream Happy Dreams. And it just came out. We recorded it in Atlanta. Or Jonathan recorded most of it here. And then we went up to Atlanta and recorded drums with Jeremy Griffith at Glow the, the old Glow in the Dark studio at Little Five Points. Yeah. And he mixed it. And it turned out great. I mean, it's still, yeah. it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of still that I've played. It's a great EP. So after the tour, like every label was emailing us. It was kind of bizarre. Like Atlantic Records, 
Capitol Records, Columbia Records, literally, we would check the band email like every morning. That's amazing. And I didn't, somebody, I didn't think I knew that. That's crazy. All these major, and indie labels too, Not nothing like Merge or something, but like other less cool indie labels. How come that never happened? I honestly think we just needed a manager because we're like, what do we do? And then and then we're just kind of waiting for to see who writes next. Yeah. And then at that point, it's like we we didn't we sat on it too long. So then when we would reply to these labels, they were they didn't care anymore. It was just kind of like maybe it like hurt their ego or I don't know how how even their way of business goes. Maybe the A and R felon. Maybe maybe the A and R guy wasn't there anymore. I don't know, but it's like we dropped the ball for sure. Yeah. That's a bummer. I feel like that would have been huge. Yeah. Man, that's a bummer. Well, and, that, and on a side note, you I know you got to play with Black Kids for a little bit, or just for like a show or two, right? Or like a tour? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, Filled in? Their, their drummer, Kevin, I guess he quit. So... I played a show with them in New York City, and then I played a show with them in Mexico at a festival. And then I recorded on their second record. I played the drums on that. We recorded in Athens, Georgia, with this guy, Andy LaMaster, which was super cool because I was a huge fan of his band, Now It's Overhead. They were in Saddle Creek. I saw them twice before, once at Jack Harwood's, once at Cafe 11 with Rilo Kiley. And his studio, I mean, it's awesome. Just to work with him was like a dream because I loved his band. And he was the sweetest guy ever, for sure. So that was a highlight of it. And getting to play with Owen was a highlight just because I loved Lugnut so much. (laughs) And then the last night of the session, we were like out at a bar, or last night of of my work, because I I left once the drums were done. But uh, Andy was like, we're going to, he's kind of like, has a Southern voice, like super soft. He's like, we're going to go up to, or I'm going to go up to this bar later tonight if you want to come. And I was like, I'm like, sure, you know, whatever. And so we're all waiting outside and then Andy walks up with, with a friend of his. And then as they get closer, you realize that it's Michael Stipe. Oh my God, that's incredible. Like beard and all, like when he had the big beard. Yeah. And I think he had like a septum piercing and, and glasses and like a beanie on or something. And we just like all shook his hand and stuff, but it was like, what in the world? Like nuts. Michael Stipe just hanging. Just I mean, hanging. I know I know he lives there, but still, it's, it was just so bizarre. That's awesome. Yeah, that was definitely. I'll remember that forever. But, but cool. yeah, after like, but after Dream Happy Dreams, we did You Will Live Forever, and we recorded that in New York City. Yeah. With Jeremy Griffith, he. Uh, did that like did all of that uh, engineered and mixed and everything and that was more of like a I don't know we dial it down I guess dial down the the programming and the synth stuff to more of like a John Lennon vibe was probably what we were going for it was cool yeah it's great we just kept doing shows you know nothing quite as we did a tour with Gil Mantera's Party Dream which was a lot of fun Maybe too much fun because those guys are crazy. But uh, you know that was great. That was probably the, other than some shows with Portugal Demand. That was probably the last like big stuff we did. Yeah. And then after that, it was just kind of like going out and headlining our own tours. And we put another record out called Future Sounds. And then by the end of that, I was just kind of 
personally felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit. Yeah. So I just, you know, I quit. And yeah. then I ended up, or I guess I'd met my future wife kind of before I quit. Lauren, she lived in Chicago at the time. And we'd been mutual friends, or we had mutual friends and knew of each other for a few years before. But we started just talking on the phone every night for months and then kind of realized that we probably were in love with each other and then she came down here to visit me and her family she had some family down here at the time and uh, a month later after that first time I proposed to her in New York City and then we got married nine months later I think or eight months or something like that awesome man so that was a big like shift for me but you know it was great you miss playing drums I honestly don't I wish I did I wish there was something that made me miss it, but not the Vista Heights. I, I honestly don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't even own drums anymore. Literally. You're a hippie, bro. I know. <laughs> I have a. I have an acoustic guitar, or I have a few acoustic guitars, but that's it. I don't like. That's all the music stuff I have. Maybe someday. Maybe. Uh, who's to say? Who's to say? You know, mate. What, dude? What if I fill in for Lars? How crazy would that be? Full oh, that would. Just so fitting. Or maybe I'll play with Ryan. Oh, yeah. You never know. I mean, it could happen, man. I mean, with the way the world's happening right now, anything could happen. Dude, that's true. Just from naughty Who to knows? nice. From Who naughty knows, to nice. Man. Who knows what the Lord has in store for us? <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, is that it? Is there. No, I mean, yeah, kind of. I don't know. Okay. Is it? Well, do you want to say? <laughs> no, but really, the... awesome, man. Well, I'm stoked for you, dude. Um, stoked that you got a baby and a wife. And, and oh, yeah. So, what are you doing stuff. now? Like, real quick. Yeah. So, you got an awesome, like, uh, video and photography and wedding, all that stuff. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. So, when me and Lauren got married shortly after, I mean, she's always, like, been a photographer, or at least was for years before we got married, but we started a kind of like a wedding photography and videography business, and we started probably seven years ago or something and still going strong. Probably shoot about 50 weddings a year. It's amazing. And we shot weddings in Australia and Mexico and Sweden, obviously all around the United States and stuff. I don't. It's cool. Like it's cool that uh, we get to do it together. It'd be very boring. Like sometimes I do them by myself, yeah. like the travel ones and stuff. Yeah, it's super it. boring. I know. But it's something that's that's been good, you know, for us and and all that. And it's nice to still sort of be creative in some aspects. Totally. Absolutely. I feel like maybe if I wasn't having that as some sort of creative outlet, maybe I would miss playing more, but oh, yeah. who's to say? I don't know. Who is to say? It's a, a very important question. I'm sorry that this has been the most boring podcast you've no, done. No, it's so not. Far. I wouldn't have no, asked. It's okay. It's okay. I wouldn't I get have it. had you on. I get it. All right. Well, I'm stoked you came on, dude. I love you. You're awesome. I love to hang out with you. You too, man. I'll see you soon. Let's hang soon, dude. I'm down. All right, bro. Bye. Bye. 
Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Who's to Say podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank Jared Chase Bowser, uh, one of my best friends in the world, for coming on to this episode and telling me these awesome stories I've heard before. I uh, figured a lot of you would like to hear. Um, really looking forward to the upcoming guests we have lined up for the Who's to Say podcast. And uh, really appreciate the support and uh, the, all the listens. So thanks for tuning in again. And uh, who's to say? Uh,